It is a great pleasure to welcome to the program two old friends, namely Victor Davis Hanson and Bruce Thornton. They're old friends in a double sense. They're both old friends of this program, have been often on this program, and they are old friends of each other, having been colleagues together in the Department of Classics for many years at the University of California at Fresno. Victor, good evening. Good evening. And Bruce, good evening to you. Hello, Uh I want to start with a quick observation. It seems to me that when it comes to students of classical a antiquity and the civilizations of classical antiquity, which both of you are in a paramount uh, sense of achievement, uh, very often they tend to be quite pessimistic about the prospect for contemporary civilization, for the civilizations that they inhabit. That was true uh, of Nietzsche, uh, who was a great student of, uh, of, of Greek civilization, was true of Oswald Spengler, was true of Arnold Toynbee, and I think clearly it is true, at least, of Bruce Thornton, uh, with whom we discussed only a little while ago his most recent book, Decline and Fall, Europe's Slow Motion Suicide. Uh, you hold to your view, Bruce. Europe is uh, engaged in a, an act of suicide. Well, it certainly appears that way. All of the indicators that we talked about last time, it's hard to see how they can, you know, progress back to the sort of strength that Europe once had, let's say, uh, prior to World War One. Now, here's what Victor said about your book. Uh, and about your, your line of work generally. And I'll ask Victor uh, to elaborate uh, around this quotation. Uh, but you said a while ago at National Review, uh, in a number of important books and articles, Bruce Thornton has written passionately about Western culture, contemporary society, and the current war against radical Islam. Now in Decline and Fall, that's the title of Bruce's most recent book, he combines those literary and historical skills to analyze why Europe has turned its back on a once illustrious Western tradition. The result is not merely a post-mortem on the failed European utopian experiment, but also a brilliant meditation itself on the human condition and our dangerous pursuit of heaven on earth. Uh, do, by all means, Victor, elaborate further. I think as a classicist, Bruce, um, getting back to your earlier point, sees that at least in the ancient mind, and the great historians, Herodotus or Thucydides or Tacitus, didn't believe in a steady uh, sense of progress. Remember, these were this was a pre-technological society, and they had seen periods in their illustrious past, the age of heroes of the Trojan War. They had seen the Peloponnesian War destroy the, the majesty of 5th century Athens. So in their view, things ebbed and flowed. And given the tragic nature of humankind, that he was full of pathologies, they didn't have these grandiose expectations that we did, given the 20th century and the uh, promise of technology. They didn't confuse technological progress with uh, moral progress. In fact, I could go a step further, as Bruce has done in the book. They made the opposite conclusion, that with material progress, you had uh, moral regress, because of this idea that the Romans called luxus that man, given his nature, the more that he was pampered, free, leisured, and wealthy, the harder was it to voluntarily give up those appetites, which was necessary to live a virtuous life. So what Bruce argued, as I read the book, about Europe was that they have heaven on earth. They have a 35-hour work week in France. They have guaranteed job security. They have no defense. They 
have put their trust in the United Nations, the International Court. They're secular, if not atheist, in the majority. And uh, they have a two-hour lunch if they want. They have everything they need, but they're dead souls. They don't believe in anything. They they allow people to be butchered, 7,000 of them in Serbia, three hours away. They, a, a Danish cartoonist makes it a simple little caricature. There's nobody in Europe to help him. Solomon Rusty's in hiding in, uh, when he goes to Europe. They, don't, they, they lecture about Darfur. They would never do anything. Saddam Hussein uh, means nothing to them. So they've lost. They don't believe in their society. They don't know how to define it. They don't want to defend it. And they yield to Islamic ferocity on their own doorstep, so to speak, do they? They do. They feel that they're captives of, I guess, the Enlightenment. They believe that everybody must appeal to reason in the way that they do, and they don't understand that if they they have a post-identity, they don't have any identity as Westerners. They don't defend their Reformation or Enlightenment or Renaissance, and they feel that everybody's that way. But the problem is that these postmodern people are dealing with pre-modern people who believe that you know Arabs are superior, that Islam is superior, that the tribal system is superior, that your first cousin is always smarter than the national government, pre-democratic. And these people do have an identity, and they're willing to fight and die for it. And the Europeans are baffled, and they think no. that these people can be bought off or can be persuaded, and I'm not convinced that's possible. Staying with uh, classical sources for just a moment, uh, and... Uh, directly to Bruce. Uh, would you call yourself a Polybian? I think of Poly uh, Polybius, of course, who's one of the great cyclic uh, theorists in, in early uh, historiography. And he also, he has a general view that all civilizations fall, and they fall essentially because with success, with material achievement, uh, you, in, you get a loss of the faith that sustained them when they were rising. You get a kind of inner decadence and hedonism, and inevitably the barbarian horde from outside will uh, move in and take over. Now, I think that's that, of course. And the great insight of, of the ancients, and I think what we moderns tend to slight, is the role of virtue and character in sustaining a civilization. And what we look at is we look at material prosperity. We look at material power and material wealth. And so we think that that's the measure of, of a civilization's greatness. Yeah. But all that is a reflection of something that's not material. And it's, it's virtue, it's you know, things like courage and honor, um, avoidance of shame. Uh, it's chauvinism in the sense of believing that, that your way of life is not just different, as we're preached at in the multicultural classroom, but it's better, it's superior. Uh, and it's and you, you see all of, you see all of that for the West anchored in the Christian in, in the faith of Christianity, which well you absolutely just as a matter of historical fact, uh, the West is is as frequently as said is a consequence of three cities: Athens, Rome, and Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And it cannot be Western just with the classical or just with the Christian heritage. It's it's all of these. Uh, put together, but but these all have to be sustained, and they have to be nourished, and they have to be handed on to the next generation, which used to be the, the function of the educational system, and that's not happening anymore. So people don't know what it means to be Western and why that's superior and why that's better, and if they don't know that, then they're not going to be as ready to defend it or to uh, try to see what's wrong 
you know, how it's declined and yeah. what they can do with change. You say that has to be handed on to the next generation. And in decline and fall, you make the further point that not only aren't these values and that faith handed on to the next generation, there is not as much of a next generation. That is the demographic crisis uh, that uh, is very, very significant in accounting for what's gone wrong in Europe. No, absolutely. I mean, and it all it all hangs together because uh, if you have something precious, you want another generation handed on to because you want it to live beyond your own generation. And you make children. Exactly, and then you see to it that they they learn it. But if you don't believe in any of those immaterial uh, or let's say spiritual values, uh, or you only believe in your own pleasure, uh, the present, then it doesn't make sense to have children. Well, now what are the hard data? Uh, either or both of you, please, on this, uh, with regard to the demographic reality in Europe concerning the um, uh, the death and birth rates for native Europeans. Well, it should be replacement is 2.1 children per right. woman, and uh, Europe averages, I believe, somewhere around uh, 1.5, 1.6, 1.6. What's even more disturbing is the traditional areas of fertility and southern, the southern Mediterranean countries, uh, the northern Mediterranean countries like Spain, Catholic Spain, Orthodox Greece, Catholic Italy have the lowest. Mm -hmm. So uh, the traditional areas where Rome, um, Europe was fertile is, is just the opposite. And, and I think it's very important because it, it sends a message that, and, and using a classical reference that, remember the Greeks said that we basically change diapers so that somebody later on will change ours. So there's a compact between generations, and also there's a notion of transcendence, that not only do you have a soul, but you try to invest materially, and you plant an orchard, you build an extra wing on your home so that somebody can inherit it. Some of you lives on, and you sacrifice, but when you don't have children, you make a conscious decision of two things. One, the state will take care of you when you're older, and you demand that entitlement from the state and indirectly from other generations that are not related to you. That's and the welfare state. Yeah, because your children are not there to take care of you. Welfare you state is fully established in Europe, in Western Europe. They sure. are, and you haven't taken care of children, they're not going to take care of you. And then the second, and I think even more disturbing idea, is that you have to be, you live day to day. You don't feel that there's any transcendence, material or spiritual. There's nothing that, if you believe that, if you don't believe in a God and you don't believe in having children, then why in the world would you sacrifice for anything in Afghanistan? It makes no sense yeah. to put a Dutchman or a young Greek down in Darfur. You wouldn't ever do what we're doing in Iraq. We have Americans that are willing to risk their lives for the concept of democracy or freedom or what's morally right or, or more importantly, the security of the United States because they feel they don't want children to grow up in a world of 9-11 or they believe that an immoral being that looks over us and, and wants freedom and moral people to succeed. Yes, but Victor, there is one group of Europeans across the many nations of Europe uh, which is quite fertile, which is demographically very productive. And that, of course, is the ever-increasing Islamic population. Because, according to this definition, they fit the pattern perfectly. And I'm not using a moral judgment, but they believe that they're going to pass on something for their children, a, the caliphate or a radical Islamic world, and they believe that there's a not only a spiritual, but there is, as we know, a material reward in heaven for them. And so even though it's an aberration of what we would consider the Christian idea of brotherly love or the European idea of the Enlightenment, as I said before, they have an identity. 
and they're willing to die for it, we don't have an identity. But they don't, unfortunately, they can't channel that emotion and that zeal within the auspices of constitutional government or, or democracy. And we, who have democracy, don't have any spiritual or emotional drive. So well, it's, now, we're mirror images of each other. Bruce, in your book, uh, Decline and Fall, which we've discussed on this program, and which is the centerpiece of our discussion again tonight, you certainly criticize European governments or European uh, or native European uh, societies for not demanding uh, effective assimilation from the recent uh, uh, migrants, that is, the uh, in-migrants, the w w who come essentially from the Islamic world. Is it conceivable that some governments might begin to try to uh, socialize uh, their Islamic uh, neighbors, so to speak, uh, so that they can, can become effective and loyal uh, Englishmen uh, or Scots or Germans or Italians or Spaniards or Frenchmen? Well, they're, they're starting to make some efforts, but then often it, it's so wrong-headed because it's not in terms of what is great about the West and its permanent values. It's more a postmodern, multicultural, the sort of flabby tolerance that, well, the West is about accepting everybody as they are and not passing judgment. And the great example is the, uh, I believe in the Netherlands, a, uh, a DVD that they uh, developed for uh, immigrants, introducing them to uh, Western life, and filled with images such as uh, two women kissing or topless and, and, and these sorts of things, which is going to have the exact opposite effect. It's going gonna, it's gonna to confirm Muslims in the decadence and worthlessness of Western civilization. About a year ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, announced that inevitably Sharia law would have to become uh, effective law in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. uh, if Whether to replace British law or whether to have equal honor uh, pa in parallel to British law. Well, I, th I think he was just, <laughs> he was thrown in the towel. He was saying there's nothing we can do about this. Yeah. And he may be right because how can, how if Europeans and their intellectuals, and we have this problem in the United States too, let's not just, you know, pile on the Europeans uh, because we have the same problem with our intellectual elites. We've been telling the world for decades now how corrupt the West is, how dysfunctional it is, that's the font of all uh, imperialism, colonialism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then we're surprised when the rest of the world despises us. So who are we going to turn to within our own culture to make that case to immigrants or to the rest of the world of, you know, the value of the Western way, when many of our own intellectual elites don't believe in it themselves. Well, you played directly into my hands. I, I have in mind to ask you, as I will in a few minutes, uh, to what degree does this analysis apply as well to the United States? You remember that Mark Stein, in his book of uh, about a year and a half ago, America Alone, argues, uh, as you do, uh, Bruce, that, um, as to use the language of Oswald Spengler, uh, the Untergang des Abendlanders, the decline of the West is moving well apace in Europe, but America still is a stronghold for the old Western values and must defend them. Uh, whether America is in a position to play that role of uh, conservator of Western civilization or not is a question I want to urge upon you shortly. But first, this immediate question to both of you, uh, what is the prediction concerning Europe? Uh, 
if you think about where Europe will be 50 years from now, uh, what do you see? Well, there's several scenarios. Uh, one is the process in place is going to continue, and, and the archbishop will be correct. There will be increasingly large autonomous uh, Islamic enclaves, uh, almost like sort of the reservations, Indian reservations uh, in the United States. So that, of course, makes it easier for there to be increased terrorist attacks, et cetera, uh, in Europe, and even more appeasement. Um, another scenario is a backlash among uh, Native Europeans in terms of nationalist movements and extreme right movements and even uh, uh, neo-fascist movements, which would then present us with, a, I think, a, a very chaotic, uh, violent, and disruptive uh, situation. But there's one scenario that doesn't seem to add up, and that's that <laughs> Europe can find some way uh, to deal with all of these problems that doesn't involve uh, either capitulation or uh, violence. I, I, we have to remember one thing, that Europe is the embryo of the Western military tradition. It's got a larger population, the EU, larger expanded EU than does the United States. It probably has a larger GNP. So it's within the material ability of Europe, should it choose, to rearm and be quite formidable as an ally hand in hand with the United States, we could do almost anything. And there has been some faint um, rec recognition of this. The EU's utopian agenda has been rejected by the Dutch, the French, especially the Irish, the Merkel, the Sarkozy, uh, the governments in Denmark and Italy. They're starting to reject a lot of the uh, socialism, utopianism, and, and cheap anti-Americanism. I wrote a column yesterday called Why Does uh, Europe Like Obama? Very critical of Europeans, and I turned on my computer today and was flooded with almost a hundred emails from angry Europeans saying, don't say that we like Obama, that's the mob does, but there's hundreds of thousands and millions of us who don't. And so I'm not quite as pessimistic as Bruce because I, I think there'll be thinking people there who will see that, as Bruce wrote, they're on the, they're on the uh, road to suicide, and I can't believe they would just completely surrender 2,500 years of the culture in the face of a, a threat like radical Islam or democracy. I said when uh, we began tonight that both of you, of course, are uh, classicists and have studied and taught and written uh, history concerning the classical civilizations, particularly both of you focused on Greece. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson's most recent book, one of many, is uh, titled A War Like No Other. It is a re-examination of the Peloponnesian War, so fully documented but not accurate in every detail, by Thucydides. Bruce Thornton's most recent book, Decline and Fall, is subtitled Europe's Slow Motion Suicide, just recently published within the year by Encounter Books. Um, and uh, you've already mentioned uh, Obama in Berlin, or Obama in Europe, which is uh, a way of um, segueing to the current American political process and presidential race, and more broadly, one can raise in that connection the question of how intact are we as a culture, or are we facing the same dynamic of decline, and if so, though perhaps on a slower schedule, and if so, what can we do to reverse that dynamic of decline? Uh, you, the two of you uh, have done work together, of course. Uh, you edited 
a book, a fine book, uh, a while ago titled Bonfire of the Humanities, which was a critique of how poorly we do the humanities in American higher education. Uh, and uh, I fully endorse what you develop in that book and what your um, various uh, anthologized authors do. But let me return to the basic question. And let me just get out of the way by putting this simple question to you and hearing, I would fain hear some discourse between you twain on it. With all that we've said so far, put now, uh, turn now to the American uh, present presidential race and put it in context. How does it bear upon the matters we have been discussing? I think we've been given a great gift in the Obama candidacy because we've seen, we haven't seen that postmodern view of the United States, that European socialist view, that utopian view so blatantly, uh, explicitly um, voiced before. And just look at the Berlin speech, for example. He went over to Germany, and almost everything he said was factually incorrect, but it didn't, he said that he, people in Berlin had not seen somebody who looked like him before. That was a plain to his race, apparently. But, of course, they had, because for the last seven years, we've had two African-American, not of mixed ancestry, but African-American secretaries of state, including a national security advisor. And then he said that he was a citizen of the world and went on to talk about the world making a stand with Berlin. And the world didn't make a stand with Berlin. Um, the only person who stopped uh, the communists from taking Berlin was Harry Truman, and Curtis LeMay, most of the European allies either could not or would not help. The British tried to do what they could. Most of the world was absolutely oblivious, just like they are today with Dorfour. So he gave a speech to the, to the world about being utopian, being citizens of the world, when he could have said for all, and he mentioned the flaws of America, but what he could have said is that there's a distinct Western tradition found nowhere else of constitutional government, free markets, and whether you like it or not, for all its fault, that's what the great hope of mankind can be. That's what Lincoln said, that's what FDR said, that's what Harry Truman said and did. And what the Europeans were rallying to was, I think, the following subtext, and that was, wow, we won the argument of the 21st century. We got an American now who comes over and does not believe in American exceptionalism. He's not this cowboy like George Bush. He doesn't believe in the use of military action. He's one of us, and he's going to raise taxes, enlarge government, and turn over the muscularity of the United States to global governance. And they, that's why I think they were applauding. And I don't think that's going to go down well with the American people. You just, you just mentioned the email you got after your piece of yesterday from Europeans who are, are differentiating themselves from those who are so enthusiastic for Obama. What are they saying? Well, they're saying Europe is a, is a broad spectrum. And people, for example, um, in Holland uh, are very worried about radical Islam. In fact, if you look at some of Danish immigration laws, it would make our worries over the border look juvenile. And this myth that American, elite Americans, affluent leisures, keep thinking they've lost their constitution when London has more surveillance cameras in every U.S. city put together, or there's no such thing as habeas corpus for the first 48 hours in some European countries. I mean, Europe does things that the American left would absolutely, if they didn't worship Europe, be abhorred if George Bush did it. So what I'm suggesting is Europeans, are, uh, many Europeans are saying, you know what, we are going to fight radical Islam. We're taking measures uh, about immigration, about preventive detention, about the suspension of habeas corpus, and we're far beyond you on wiretaps or surveillance cameras. 
So don't lecture us about being, uh, you know, postmodern because uh, we understand the threat of radical Islam much more than you do. And I, uh, not that all Europeans voice those sentiments, but a number do. And uh, I think. I think this is all going to work out to the good because I think Americans are going to see a candidate who believes in sort of an Al Gore environmentalism. Uh, he's going. You know, we had that. We've been. We've seen this utopian view. Nancy Pelosi said today she's trying to save the planet. Al Gore said he's trying to save civilization. Obama said he's trying to stop the waters from rising. We're starting to see this messianic view that a lot of these utopians have, and I think ultimately. Americans who are very pragmatic, practical people with a very different history than most of the world are going to reject it. Um, same question to Bruce Thornton. Put our American presidential race as it is uh, uh, bubbling right now into the context of all we've said so far. Well, I think I think Victor's hit the nail on the head. I mean, just as John Kerry was and Al Gore was, and to a certain extent even uh, Bill Clinton, Obama is a European candidate. He, he's has a utopian view of the possibility of what government can do, which is a hallmark of European society. Um, he does not recognize the tragic limits on, on human action, uh, the power of human, irrational human passions and affairs, which means that talk and diplomacy frequently are not going to be effective and that uh, brutal force uh, will be. I think a lot of European, particularly European elites, like him because what he's basically saying is he will sacrifice the interests of the United States to the interests of, of Europe, because that's what this is all about. Behind all the utopian rhetoric, there does exist some old-fashioned uh, national interest on the part of European states, particularly the French, uh, that sees their uh, power dependent on the lessening of our power and, and influence. And so, you know, of course they love him. Uh, I'm not as, I don't think I'm as optimistic as Victor is about uh, what happens with the American people. I hope he's right. I, I hope that, you know, we wake up on, you know, after the first Tuesday in November and we we see that the majority of Americans have, have seen through the whole, you know, uh, fraud of this campaign, if that's not too strong a word. But I'm not so sure uh, when you look at the whole of our popular culture, our television, uh, our movies, the, the media's incredibly uh, shameful infatuation with Obama and the campaign and his campaign. Uh, when you see that this is reinforced every day in every school across America and every university classroom, uh, th those are some very, very strong and powerful forces. Well, how does one how, how then does one account for that? How do you, in fact, you account for the phenomenon of Barack Obama, and the great marketing operation, which has run by David Axelrod and others, which has worked so effectively to bring uh, millions into great enthusiastic confirmation of his presidential aspirations, and of course the great welcome that he's had even this very day in Washington from the other high figures of the Democratic Party. There is uh, an Obama enthusiasm which has swept the nation. Uh, I don't share it. Clearly, the two of you don't share it. Tomorrow, I will get emails, Victor, which will criticize me for not having a pro-Obama uh, presence on this program tonight. Uh, but um, uh, how does one account for the Obama boom? Well, I think there's two things. Excuse me, Victor. 
Uh, one, he's the anti-Bush. And yeah. the, the, the last eight years, we've seen some of the most irrational, strange uh, political hatred. Uh, it eclipses even what some on the right had for, for Clinton. And Obama seems to be the exact opposite. Has Bush brought some of that uh, hatred upon himself by his own missteps? I don't think so. I mean, he could have been a more effective communicator, perhaps. But, uh, you know, this, this this has nothing to do really with Bush, per se, as it does with the larger worldview that we've been talking about and that Bush seemed to embody, uh, perhaps because of his personality and his personal style, in ways that were re really grating. I think the second point, and and what people don't want to talk about that's obvious is the whole racial issue. Um, you know, the pathologies of white, particularly white liberal attitudes towards uh, blacks in the United States is all being laid bare by uh, this campaign. And, you know, people like Thomas Sowell and people like uh, Shelby Steele have written perceptibly about this. And what we're seeing is the, the strange uh, racism, I think is the correct word, of liberal America in, in which they are so anxious, so anxious to shed their racial guilt and to prove, to prove that they have not a scintilla of racial animus, that, that they've lost their senses over this, this uh, mediocre candidate. We should remember, too, that this is not Colin Powell or Condoleezza Rice who, when they give a public speech, don't mention their race, but excel on their stellar records as diplomats or military officers. For all of Obama's uh, talk about transcending race, he cannot give a speech without mentioning race. He said, oh, by the way, did I tell you that they're going to use the fact that I'm black? He goes to Europe. I don't look like people you've seen before. Race is always on his mind. And he offers white America, unlike Powell or Rice, who say to, to America, race is incidental to my achievement, to my character, to my persona. Obama says race is essential to my persona. Actually, if you read his first book, it is totally... It is a memoir or autobiographical account. It is totally preoccupied with race. Absolutely, and the sub, not to use that word again, but the subtext that white liberal America is, I can get rid of my guilt, I can get rid of the guilt of my supposed ancestors, and I can vote for this man, and very cheaply, I don't have to tutor in the ghetto, I don't have to go live in an integrated neighborhood, I don't have to send my kids to an inner city school, this this is what I want. It makes me feel good about myself. It makes me feel good about my country. And he, the way he conducts his, himself, his elocution, he sounds transracial, except, of course, when he goes into the Reverend Wright sort of faux uh, sermonizing in the black church. But it's pretty pathological because this is somebody who said he was going to transcend race and very quickly in the primary was getting 90% of the black vote while he was complaining that his white opponent was appealing to racial solidarity by getting 60% of the white vote. And that's the rules that he's established. And, and there's a whole pathology there. He said that people who mention his middle name are trying to use anti-Islamic code language. And yet, when he gives a lecture, he was asked the other day, why do people in the Middle East like you so much? Well, it's, maybe it's because I'm exotic in my middle name. And with Barack Obama, there's always a two-way street. One saying nobody can mention race, nobody can mention anything else about 
his name or anything, but he can at opportune times when it suits him. And if he wants to talk in negative and pejorative fashion about race, whether he characterizes the whole state of Pennsylvania mm -hmm. as yahoos, or he says his grandmother was a racist, or that she's like a typical white person, then white people will suspend all uh, criticism. So it's a one-way street, and anybody who, as you know from your email, you'll get tomorrow, anyone who wants to take Barack Obama on his own merits as a two-year senator who has a, an array of pretty repulsive people in his past, whether it's Redsko or it's Father Flieger or Ayers or Reverend Wright, or wants to look at what he said and what he said the second time, whether it's FISA, campaign finance, abortion, capital punishment, Iran, Iraq, all of these things we slip, you don't see a lot there. But, no. but if you just make those arguments, somebody somewhere on the left is going to say you're racist. So race is all right if you're Barack Obama and you will use it to appeal to white guilt. But if you forget race, and critic, critique Obama, the gifted rhetorician who sh by no means has any qualifications for president, then you're going to be hit with a race card. So it's a win-win situation, he thinks, for himself. Uh, gentlemen, let me take a moment uh, to invite telephone calls. Uh, and anyone who wants to join in this conversation to pose a question or offer a thought should call instantly. We have about 14 minutes left. Uh, the phone number is ever 591-7200. 591-7200, 312, the area code, if you need an area code. Uh, and if you want to reach us via email, that's extension720 at tribune.com. Victor, as you're talking about uh, his friends, and you mentioned one, Bill Ayers, uh, one small item of some interest, and I mentioned this to our listeners, who will find it on our program blog, miltsfile.com, is a speech that Bill Ayers gave just two years ago down in Caracas, in which uh, he lauds what he calls the Bolivarian Revolution that uh, Hugo Chavez has instituted uh, in his own country. And Chavez is in the audience, and of course, Ayers is lavish with his praise for uh, this Bolivarian Revolution and manages to get in a few nasty words about capitalism. Yeah, um, well, my, my, I think the point is, Mill, I don't think you or I or Bruce or anybody mind if. Obama to jumpstart his career wants to go and ask money from this creepy person, or they don't think they really mind if he wants to sit there for 20 years by somebody damns America, or they don't mind if he wants as a legislator direct money to Father Flagger, or they don't mind if his wife serially says she has no pride in America, or it's a mean, downright mean country, or they raise the bar. We don't have any problem with that, but what we do have a problem with is after saying that and doing that for a quarter century than to suddenly say that people who are bothered by that are somehow racist or insensitive. And I just don't think it's going to fly for uh, most Americans are going to say, this is a free country. Your wife, your friends, you can associate with a group of people who feel that America, its past, its nature, its culture, is more pathological and positive, fine. But if you want to represent all of us, we find that offensive. And we find your explanations for that behavior inadequate and we find the policies that you advocate in line in some cases with your past career, and we're not going to vote for it. That's fine. But to then say to people either you're a racist because you feel that way or you're, you're illiberal or you're retrograde or uh, 
you're afraid of change, you're afraid of hope. That's what Obama's trying to do and what we're essentially saying this is the most liberal senator in the Congress, according to the National Journal and other people like ACLU, ADA, and he said things that are pretty outstanding um, in their nonsense. He said the other day that he wanted to create a mirror image of the Pentagon, a civilian defense force, the same funding. That would mean that you were going to borrow $500 billion a year to create something like that. Let me, let me put a... Uh, it's pretty absurd, and yet we don't bring the light of reason onto what this guy says. Now, since there is no representative of the Democratic Party here at the moment, <laughs> I fear, let me ask either or both of you to, to do an effort to, to exert an effort of uh, uh, empathy or identification and role-play for me what, for example, Cass Sunstein, yet another distinguished member of the law faculty at the University of Chicago until he just recently moved to Harvard. What he would say if he were sitting here in response to what you were saying? Well, he would attack George Bush. He'd say that we have record debt. He'd be, a, he'd be right about that. He would say that we're in a precarious energy situation. He's right about that. And there's culpability to go around for Bush and the Republicans. He, could, he would say that he's a charismatic, messianic leader, Obama. He'd be right about that. I think that's all about all he could say. I'd be welcome to, to, to bait him, but um, there's no doubt in my mind that we have not seen somebody so rhetorically skilled from a set speech on a teleprompter in 50 years. But remember that Obama's trying to do something that we haven't also seen in 50 years. We have not had a Democratic nominee from a northern state win the presidency since Sean Kennedy. Kerry couldn't do it. Mondale couldn't do it. Dukakis couldn't do it. Humphrey couldn't do it. McGovern couldn't do it. The only time they even have a chance if it's Gore who won the popular vote, not the presidency, or Clinton or Carter. And so we're, yeah. the, the nation's going to have to vote for a northern doctrinaire leftist, and they have not done that in a half century. And Obama knows that, and his hammers know that, and Cass Sussman knows that. And therefore, you're going to see what you're seeing, that is, on foreign policy, on the death penalty, on abortion, on campaign finance, all of the positions that won the hearts and minds of the left, He's now going to refute, go to the center, and he's telling mm -hmm. the left in coded language, put up with it. This is what happens in politics. i got to get elected, yeah. and then I'll give you your agenda. Will it work? I, I think it'll come close, but I think come September or October, uh, it's, not very, it's not common in American politics with somebody who's only been a U.S. senator for two years to have the poise and the experience to carry that, that audacious plan out because... Already we've seen him say there's 57 states, there's 47 states, Arkansas is next to uh, Kentucky, we liberated Auschwitz, um, I'm all, as if he's, uh, what's wrong with speaking at the Brandenburg Gate, you know, presidents do that, he's not a president. So we, the chance is always going to keep and continually to say things that are ridiculous, let's create another Pentagon and, and, and save the world. Not because he's not bright, he's in some ways brilliant, he's a great speaker and communicator, but it's very, again, hard for anybody, Republican, Democrat, Independent, with only two years in the Senate, to run a long year-and-a-half campaign and not reveal his inexperience, and in, some, in some cases, his absurdity to the American people. Gentlemen, but, let's go quickly now to the phones. Time is short, and of course, we've got a full board of calls here. Here is the first. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, no, hello, gentlemen. Uh, this is Greg in Portage Park. How are you doing tonight? 
Go ahead, sir, please. Uh, what I wanted to comment about earlier was uh, you were mentioning that Europe had lost its focus and identity and its original spirit uh, in favor of prosperity, financial prosperity. Um, I think it's a slippery slope that everyone can fall into because, in fact, you have to finance your dreams and you have to find ways of funding to support your belief system. Uh, what happens, I think, over time is that uh, we find that making money is easier than holding laws principles, and they slide away. And I think that that's a tendency that we're experiencing here in America. I'm extremely disappointed in both parties for bringing forth the candidates they have. I think they could have been better with a lottery. Some uh, direct response from our guest, Bruce Lawrence. Well, I mean, it, it's true, and this is a historical truism that the affluent material comfort erodes the kinds of uh, values that are required to maintain a civilization, which seemingly those sorts of values are encouraged and sharpened and, and strengthened by adversity. So there's a general, I think, human uh, predicament here, and I think uh, your call is right about that. As far as the candidates, you know, a democracy tends to get the, <laughs> the, the candidates the citizens deserve, and you know, there may be better ones out there, but these are the ones that uh, uh, that we've got, and they reflect, I think, where we are as a people uh, right now. And where we are as a people is not very well educated, not very well informed, despite having more information uh, than ever, not very sharp uh, at critical thinking. Uh, otherwise, everything that Victor was talking about with, with Obama's inconsistencies, Etc. Uh, would have uh, would have derailed them uh, uh, by this time. We're going down to the wire, uh, fellows, with only five minutes left. So let me. I must be rather abrupt. Let me quickly read you an email. Okay, Milt. Let's hear why McCain is the better candidate. Balance this a little, please. Says the uh, the listener. Uh, I could answer that. Please. I think that he. He encapsulates a lot of Bush's strengths. He didn't want to cut and run in Iraq. He, when he supported the war, he took responsibility to at least stick with the policy through thick and thin and saw that defeat would be catastrophic, so he supported the surge when few did. He, uh, his big criticism of Bush was the record deficits. He was against earmarks. It's for balanced budgets. Remember, the tax cuts have not led to a loss in revenue. The deficits are a direct result of out-of-control federal spending, which McCain opposed. I have a lot of disagreements with him on campaign financing. I think he's not as strong as he should be about closing the border, at least originally. But um, uh, on spending and American security abroad and fighting the war on terror, and right now, and also I, I must mention that we, need, we all want wind, solar, we all want plug-in cars, but we're 15, 20 years from that, and we'll, we'll work to get it. We don't want to go bankrupt by subsidizing our enemies to the tune of $700 billion a year, and that means we've got to develop coal, clean coal, nuclear power, nat more natural gas, and especially more oil here, and all of those I think Obama's against. Let's go quickly to another listener. Here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Hi. Yeah, I just, uh, I'm a clothing retailer in Chicago, and there's a lot of similarities between the Obama campaign and a fashion item. When a new item comes on, blind, like bell bottoms, 
people rush to it. And as soon as uh, it takes about a year, and then it begins to go down. It goes down with a thud. Uh, and that's what's happening with Obama. He's new, but when push comes to shove, when people get into the the booth, they're going to go for the Levi's. They're going to go for the staid and true Levi's. He's a bell-bottom. They'll have a year and a half, two years of fashion statement, and it'll be over. And well, but you elect a president. But you elect a president for four years. Sir. No, no, his campaign will. Be, he won't make it. He won't make it to November. It'll be over. Uh-huh. It's, it's been a year and a half already, and you can see his numbers are dropping now. People, he's an empty suit, and people will realize that, and they'll go back to something tried and true, uh, McCain. And uh, I like Obama, but I know what's going to happen when someone doesn't have the experience. They don't have the the long-term um, knowledge that you need to be president, and people realize that. And that's what's going to happen. You'll see the numbers dropping. Well, that's an interesting prediction. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, you can generalize from sartorial reality to political reality. But uh, let's turn uh, to Victor Davis Hanson and Bruce Thornton on that one. Well, I hope he's right. I don't want to be wearing bell-bottoms come November. <laughs> well, I, I, I wrote a little essay once called The Pet Rock, and I think it's the same phenomenon. Yeah. There were people who went out and got stones and paid $10 to put a stone on their counter. And I think that uh, when I talk to young people, and I work at a university, and I'll say, why are you voting for Obama? And they'll say, hope and change. And I'll say, can you be more specific? What's he for? What exactly is he for? What is he for about Iraq? What does he want to do in Iran? What does he want to do about energy? What's he feel about campaign finance reform? What's his uh, position on immigration? What's his position on um, capital punishment, abortion? Victor, I can't resist. There's literally only about a minute and a half left. What's the uh, Athenian equivalent of uh, 5th century B.C.? Alcibiades? Or yes, I think it's uh, Alcibiades, absolutely. We had a very gifted speaker who he wasn't an oligarch, he wasn't a Democrat, he wasn't for Sicily, he wasn't against Sicily, he wasn't he was a common man. He was a wealthy man. He was a poor man. He was a general. He was a man in the ring. He was anything that anybody wanted from him at any given time. And as your caller said, that he was enormously popular until people found out that he had no core values. And I think that when I talk to young people, they can't articulate at all uh-huh. what his position is. They have no idea, except that, he, as Bruce said, he's not from Texas, he's not a Bible thumper, he doesn't have a twang, he doesn't say things like smoke them out, round them up, uh, dead or alive, and that right Mm -hmm. now at this moment seems to be appealing to a lot of people. Gentlemen, we are out of time. I am very grateful to both of you for joining us on rather short notice. Our guests have been Victor Davis Hanson of the Hoover Institution, Bruce Thornton of uh, Fresno State University, both of them leading classic scholars and very significant and interesting commentators on contemporary society and its politics.